Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 161, and it's the story of Perry Russo, part two. Where we left off at the end of episode 160 was the series of sodium pentothal and hypnosis sessions that Russo underwent prior to testifying in public for the first time at the preliminary hearing for Clay Shaw. Those and one other traditional but intensive review session with the DA's office just before the hearing were the prep work, so to speak, before Russo's big public debut in court under oath. Jim Phelan was the first person outside of the DA's office who had seen the Chambra memo on Perry Russo. Phelan knew that the memo was important because Russo seemed to be the only witness that was relied upon when deciding to charge Shaw. So, naturally, the first question Phelan asked himself was whether or not there was enough in that memo, enough that truly happened as documented in that initial interview of Perry Russo by Chambra, enough in that memo to justifiably charge Shaw as they had done on March 1, 1967. Getting the memo in advance of the preliminary hearing only served to heighten the scrutiny that Russo's testimony would receive from Phelan, and it did just that. Phelan wasted no time, and he read the memo carefully, page by page, scouring it for any and all facts which might be relevant. Much to his astonishment, he found that the memo contained absolutely no reference to the assassination planning party, and it did not even mention Clay Shaw or Clay Bertrand or Clem Bertrand or even Lee Harvey Oswald ever being present at those same parties. Phelan would join Garrison on a trip to Las Vegas, but this trip was not helpful either when it came to solidifying Phelan's confidence in Garrison and the theory and substance behind the Clay Shaw investigation. The more he listened to Garrison, the less confident that Phelan was about anything that Garrison was espousing. He found Garrison to be scattered, with no real substantive evidence supporting his arguments. So, for Phelan, there was only one thing left to do, and that was to challenge Garrison and Shambra regarding the accuracy of the Chambra memo, which he did. As I said, what Phelan did see was the absence of anything in the memo about the assassination planning party, and he was astounded. How could they have spent three hours together on that Saturday, the 25th, and have that most important fact be missing from the memo? Such an important and integral part of the narrative when it came to deciding on the guilt of Clay Shaw as it relates to charging him with conspiracy. No discussion whatsoever of the alleged party and discussion of the assassination. No Clay Shaw present. 
Phelan would even ask about whether Shambra kept his original notes from the Baton Rouge meeting and if the documentation was contained therein and just left out of the final memo version. Phelan would accept it as a Scribner's error. Sloppy, but plausible. Shambra would explain that due to security leaks in the DA's office, he had burned his original notes after preparing the memo, and so there could be no such comparison made. But wait, there was a second memo, a follow-up memo done shortly thereafter, and it related to the first hypnosis session, and that memo does include these facts. And the timing and preparation of this second memo in relation to the timing and completion of the original memo now becomes a critical piece of the puzzle, according to Shambra and the DA's office. A critical piece of the puzzle in understanding what happened and why there may be a simple explanation as to why those facts don't appear in the finished version of the original memo. <laughs> so, once again, it has come down to the jury deciding who is telling the truth here, or at least understanding what happened and whether there was a plausible explanation as to why the core of the plot could have been left out of the original Shambra memo. And that is what we are going to explore over the course of the next few episodes, using stories told by the participants themselves, and also, in some cases, the testimony under oath of some of these participants, including Perry Russo. So, without further ado, let's listen to episode 161 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. In court, both Andrew Shambra and Perry Russo insisted that they had discussed the assassination plot, including the meeting with Leon Oswald and Clem Bertrand at their initial interview in Baton Rouge. But we'll get to all of that soon enough. Oh, one correction, and it's an important one. I mistakenly said in the last episode that Shambra completed his 3,500-page memo on the Baton Rouge meeting and handed it to Garrison on Monday. The Monday, right after the weekend meeting in Baton Rouge. In reality, it may not have happened that way because by some accounts, Chambra finished the Baton Rouge memo after Monday. He wasn't done with it yet. And not done yet before it came time for the first hypnosis session. And time dictated the circumstances, so to speak. Once a hypnosis session occurred... Russo turned his attention to writing a new memo, a second memo, a memo covering the results of this first hypnosis session. By this time, the Baton Rouge session was old news, so to speak. Once done with the hypnosis memo, Shambra would circle back and complete the original memo covering the meeting in Baton Rouge. The change in sequence of completing these memos was born of the practical need to complete the memo on hypnosis and do that right after the session was over. And these circumstances were all later used as, well, excuses 
as to why getting all the details into the original 3,500-word memo wasn't so important now, at the point he finally completed it, after the updated hypnosis memo was finished. Because, of course, the hypnosis memo did include all of these facts. No one knew at the time that the lack of mention in the original memo would be interpreted as de facto evidence that these facts were made up after the fact. Because these events and facts were covered in the hypnosis session and then documented in the hypnosis memo first, Shambra explains that he simply did not think it a big deal to go back and document them in the original memo. I know I'm saying it over and over. And I know, I know, all of this is a rather awful or awfully weak explanation as to why there was no assassination party mentioned and why there was no Oswald and no Clay Bertrand or Clem Bertrand mentioned in that memo. It was shabby record-keeping at best by Shambra. But Shambra would maintain that these things were discussed in that initial Baton Rouge meeting and simply just left out of the memo. And as a juror, you have to consider that this explanation, while not a completely satisfactory one, may have been the God's honest truth. And that's all it was. And all the rest of this was just noise being conjured up by pundits, some of which were also FBI and CIA informants, with the objective of derailing the investigation. It was just a matter of Scribner's error. In order to help clarify this, we are simply going to give it to you verbatim from sworn testimony, and you can make up your own mind. Today, we'll pick it right back up, right there at the preliminary hearing. But first, let's talk about some highlights that generally make up the rest of the Perry Russo story in this little mini-season of time. Perry Russo would testify during the Clay Shaw preliminary hearing from March 14th through March 16th, 1967. Within a week, he would make an appearance and give testimony to the New Orleans Grand Jury on March 22nd. And he would come back and testify again for a second time in front of the grand jury on March 27th, 1967. As Russo began to emerge as the star witness and his testimony became more widely circulated and there were more and more data points from which to compare and contrast what he was saying about who was involved, what events occurred and what he witnessed or did not witness, well, it made up the platform for what would come next. In the March 1967 time frame, as Russo made these series of appearances to testify under oath, all of the information about his sworn testimony was beginning to come under greater scrutiny. The grand jury testimony would not yet be available, of course, widely anyway, but the preliminary hearing testimony would become more widely known in a hurry especially as it was being cross-referenced to his earlier and very public unsworn statements and interviews with the press that kicked off his public debut of sorts. Remember, those were made during the week that David Ferry died, back toward the end of February 1967. Shaw's lawyers were ready, and they probably had already been armed by the information that had passed out of Garrison's hands and into the FBI's. They would attack 
Russo's credibility and attempt to engage him in contrary statements during the preliminary hearing. But nowhere was the pressure more intense than that placed on the circumstance by Saturday Evening Post reporter Jim Phelan. He came down to New Orleans in March 1967 to begin to collaborate more closely with Garrison and almost immediately immersed himself in the process of understanding how this testimony by Perry Russo progressed from its original state to where it ended up in the preliminary hearing and later, of course, in Russo's grand jury testimony and then ultimately his testimony at trial. One can't help but think that because he was an FBI informant and perhaps had concluded early that he was going to be on the side that would help to derail Garrison's investigation, that he began with the end in mind and he worked backward to identify things that were problematic potentially and simply making more of them than was reasonable and rational. But that's a question for you as a juror in attempting to understand the intent of Phelan throughout this process. Perhaps the true fateful moment came when Garrison, feeling the need to get away from the pressures and the publicity surrounding the case in the first few days right after charging Shaw that he decided to go to Las Vegas on a weekend trip for some probably well-deserved R&R, but a little detective work too. Bill Gervich, one of his principal investigators who Garrison mistakenly still trusted at the time, would be with him. And Garrison also invited Jim Phelan to join him in Vegas. Phelan did just that. Phelan would fly out separately and take care of a few things in advance of the meeting. Unbeknownst to Garrison, Phelan was already active in his role as informant to both the FBI and likely the CIA. Phelan would meet with Robert Mayhew in Vegas, whom you as a listener have already been introduced to in other JFK Enduring Secret episodes. Oh, what a web of connection, isn't it? Phelan would inform Mayhew of his activities with Garrison. Johnny Roselli would be in Vegas that weekend, and there would be implications that Garrison actually met with Roselli, a member of the mob. More on that later. It was there in Vegas that Garrison explained to Phelan the story of Perry Russo. And it was there in Vegas that Garrison would disclose to Phelan the existence of the now infamous 3,500-word Chambra memo on Perry Russo. Yes, the memo that was drafted just after the first meeting between Chambra and Russo, which occurred on February 25th in Baton Rouge. Not only would Garrison divulge the existence of this memo, but he would hand Phelan a copy of it. And shortly thereafter, he would make a photocopy of it. And after the meeting, Phelan would fly to Washington, D.C. with these important and confidential documents that Garrison had provided to him during their stay in Vegas, and they would soon be in the hands of the FBI. The original Baton Rouge Perry Russo memo by Chambra, along with a memo on the first hypnosis session. Phelan would hand them over to FBI agent H.B. Linebaugh and brief the FBI agent on Garrison's activities. Linebaugh reported directly to Deke Deloach, the number two man at the FBI at the time. 
and information this sensitive was likely to have made its way directly to J. Edgar Hoover on short order. Make no mistake about it, the Garrison investigation was a highly sensitive matter at the highest levels of government. This was but one more validation of that. There were moments when Garrison's lieutenants would just shake their heads at the boss's actions. And the handing over of these memos to Phelan in Vegas was one of those moments. Louis Ivon and James Alcock would be shocked at the news of it. And so this most sensitive testimony would now be in the hands of the FBI. Prior to Perry Russo even making his way onto the stand. And before anything that was said under oath would begin to stir the pot. In fact, Phelan had the memo even before Perry Russo had completed all of the hypnosis sessions that he would undergo before the preliminary hearing. It was real-time spying that was going on inside the Garrison investigation. You may be wondering how in the world Garrison could have been so trusting of this character, Phelan. Well, the short history is this. At the height of Garrison's early popularity after being elected, David Chandler, a local reporter, had written an article extolling Garrison as the best DA that New Orleans had ever seen, a piece entitled The Vice Man Cometh. And Phelan had been instrumental in getting Chandler's piece published in the Saturday Evening Post at the time. And that was the beginning of what appeared to be a relatively supportive version of Phelan in the early goings. But that changed quickly. Garrison wasn't totally naive, though. Later, he would have electronics installed in Russo's home so that he could record the interview sessions between Phelan and Russo. But before we get to the sworn testimony that occurred in court, let's start with how Jim Phelan tells the story of the infamous memo and how he intervened to make it all unravel. I'm going to borrow now from James Kirkwood's American Grotesque that was published in 1992. In that, there is Jim Phelan's account of his involvement with the Jim Garrison investigation, as recorded by Kirkwood. So here it goes as I do Phelan in the first person. When I got down here in New Orleans in March 1967, it took me about three or four days to get to Garrison. What was all the other press here? I left a message for him and he finally called me. We met and had a couple of short sessions. And he said, oh hell, let's get out of here. I need a rest. Meet me in Las Vegas. So I flew out there and a day or so later, I met him at the airport, drove him into town and checked him in at the Sands where he registered under the name of W.O. Robertson which is Willard Robertson, you know, one of the truth and consequences guys. So we talked, had a long session, and I simply, uh, the more he talked, the more I began to lose faith. He simply couldn't make any sense. He just rambled in every direction. He found it enormously significant that David Ferry didn't put on his ice skates at the skating rink in Houston on Ferry's trip the weekend of the assassination. That was one of the big pieces of evidence he picked up that the FBI missed. 
apparently it was later found that Ferry did skate that Saturday. It was the Winterland rink manager, Roland Charles, who believed that Ferry did not. In fact, in my notes, I underline that because he made such a big point of it. I said, all right, so he didn't put on his ice skates. So what? And Garrison says, well, this is like, you know, how you take a thread on a coat and pull it and unravel the whole coat. Garrison would say, this is the thread that I got hold of and helped me solve the whole case. That David Ferry didn't put on his ice skates. He hung around the phone there, Garrison said, and so that had to be the message center. Well, I said back to Garrison, what message center? Did somebody call him? Well, he said, no, we we haven't tracked that down, but this was obviously the message center. Phelan would go on to say the Garrison never did track that down. The phone records from the payphone at the Winterland skating rink were never sought or subpoenaed. And the message center theory was dropped completely in Garrison's 1988 book on the Trail of the Assassins. And so you see, he rambled on like this and then bumps over to something else. And I make all these notes. And when I get through, I begin to think this guy is off his rocker. He cannot tell a coherent story. He apparently has no evidence. I think he sensed this because I'd say, well, then. That means you've got proof that so-and-so did this or that. Garrison would respond back, well, no, it, it didn't work that way. I kept pushing him for some kind of evidence. I think this is why he gave me the two documents. We went up to his room and he said, all right, I've got two documents for you. You take them home, read them tonight, because this is the heart of the case. The two things he gave me were the memorandum of Assistant DA Andrew Chambres when he first interviewed Russo in Baton Rouge, and the second one was a transcript of Russo's answers when he was hypnotized by Dr. Fatter. Russo tells two different stories. Up in Baton Rouge, he, one, doesn't say anything about knowing Clay Shaw as Clem Bertrand. Two, he says nothing about Shaw knowing Oswald. And three, He says nothing about Shaw and the party at which the assassination talk supposedly. He doesn't mention the assassination. So I took them back and I read them and I read them and I read them again and I reread them. I kept reading them thinking I've missed something here. I read each one of them very carefully about three or four times and then I realized how they had procured Perry Russo. Either he was a born liar or a suggestible witness, one or the other. Most important, he hadn't had anything at all of any incriminating nature when he appeared, and then he was processed into this other thing. Of course, at this time, we're 10 days before the preliminary hearing, and I don't know what he's going to say when he gets on the stand. I was to meet Garrison at 10 the next morning and return the documents. When he gave them to me, he did not put any restrictions on them. He knew I was writing a piece. He said, you'll now understand my case when you read them. So I got up early and I made a call to Bob Mayhew at the Desert Inn. And I told him I needed a Xerox and I needed it fast. 
I had to have two documents Xeroxed, and I did not want anyone else reading them or knowing they were being copied. They Xeroxed the copies for me, and I returned the originals to Garrison and made no comment about the thing. I wanted to wait for the trial. I immediately called the Post, talked to the chief editor, Don McKinney, and told him I had a bomb in the case, and it would blow Garrison's key witness right out of the water, that I had a problem with my conscience because I knew they were taking Shaw to the preliminary hearing, and if his lawyers had this, they could knock Rousseau right off the stand. But I was employed by the Post, and what should I do? He said he'd call me back, and he went and talked to Otto Frederick, the managing editor of the Post, who was an assassination buff, by the way, and he called me back, and he said, I have a message from Friedrich. He says, tell Phelan to try to refrain himself from telling Garrison how to run his investigation. So I was thereby put under wraps with what I had in so far as the defense was concerned. Then I attend the preliminary hearing and I sit there and listen to Russo tell this marvelously detailed story about the party that he'd not mentioned when he first appeared as a witness. The following day, I called Garrison at his home and told him there was something deeply troubling me. And he said, come out here and tell me about it. Well, I went out to the house and he was there with his wife and children. And shortly after I got there, Bill Gervich and his wife came out. And I told Garrison that I said, how come Perry Russo told two different stories? How come when he first appeared, he did not identify Shaw as Bertrand. He did not say Shaw knew Oswald, and he said nothing at all about an assassination plot at any party. His mouth kind of dropped open, and he said, he didn't? At that point, I realized Garrison had not read the memos he'd given me. He said, well, I'll have to get Mumu, Shambra, that is, out here and explain it. So, Shambra comes out there, they shoo the women out of the room and sat down and Garrison said, okay, tell him your problem. I did. And Shambra came back at me real hard and said, mister, you don't know what the shit you're talking about. I said, look, I've got some bad news for you, Moo. I said, I've read your memo. I've got a copy of your memorandum and I've read it six, seven, eight times. I can almost recite it from memory, and there ain't nothing in there about the assassination plot. I'll tell you how sure I am, I said. I'll make a deal with you. If that memo isn't the way I've described it, I'll resign from the Saturday Evening Post tomorrow. If it is the way I described, you resign from the DA's office tomorrow. We'll shake hands and then read the memo, and tomorrow one of us is going to be out of work. And at that point, he immediately backed off like that. I said, Jim, get a copy of the memo because I left mine in the safe down at the hotel. So Garrison is rummaging around in the drawer alongside his desk trying to find the memo. Then Shambra changed his story. Now he says, well, he wrote the memo in a big hurry and he said maybe he forgot to put in about the assassination plot. And I told him to come down off the wall. I said, come on now. You found a witness to the crime of the century 
and you come down and write a 3,500-word memo and leave the crime out of it, put in all of this other chicken shit stuff, but you leave the crime out? I said, nobody can be that stupid. Besides, this hypnosis transcript shows how the thing was pulled out of him. So he ding-donged it back and forth, and Gervich sat there and never said a word over in the corner. I said, you know, the thing that really hangs me up is that you said Russo said he saw the man, Clay Shaw, twice and named the two times, once on the Nashville Wharf and once in a car with David Ferry. So if he told you about the party, you not only had to forget to leave out about the party, but you also had to change the number of times you conform with what you were told here. And that won't work. Shambra was pretty hostile at this point. We broke up and nobody was very friendly with anybody else. Now I said, I'll call a cab and go back. And Gervich says, no, I'm going back to town. I'll drive you back. I get in the car with Gervich, who was his chief investigator, and this thing made a terrible impact on him. He said, man, you have just blown up the only witness we've got. He said, I'll never forget Shambra sitting there lying to you. He said, this little son of a bitch, this memo was his little magnum opus, and he sits there telling you he had a half a dozen other things to do. This was the one big thing that this little SOB did, and he sat there saying, maybe I forgot. And Gervish said, man, he worked that memo over and polished it and repolished it. Gervish was terribly upset. The day after the meeting, out at his house, Garrison called me up and had me go to lunch with him at Broussard's. He was upset by my reaction and he talked about it. Again, I told him I thought he had a suggestible witness on his hands. And he said, well, that's no problem because we never make suggestions to anyone. I went over to the office in the afternoon. I looked up Shambra and said, look, we can resolve this thing very simply. If he told you about the three missing points, particularly about the assassination plot, I said, you've made notes up there. Just show me your original notes. And if you can show me where it is in your notes, then I'll agree you forgot it and didn't put it down in your memo. He told me he burned his notes, didn't have them. I said I wanted to talk to Russo. Chambra said Russo wouldn't talk to anybody without their permission. I said, well, call him up and tell him I'm coming to talk to him. He made a call in my presence, but was unable to get Russo. I called Chambra later on in the day, and he said he'd been able to reach Russo, and he'd see me if I came up there. I said, did you tell him what the problem was? And he said, yes, I told him. I said, well, that's a dumb thing to do. You tip off a guy who screwed up his testimony, how he screwed up, and he's got a lot of time to think up an answer. I raised this point with Garrison. I said, for Christ's sake, Shambra told him what's wrong. Garrison said, well, why bother to go up? But I decided to go. I thought it was a futile trip, and in all probability, Moo, well, Moo probably didn't really understand how he had screwed up, so... He probably couldn't explain it to Perry. And I went up with Matt Heron, who was a photographer with a post. 
I told Russo, look, I got a copy of the memo Shambra wrote about the interview with you, and I'm going to use it for the article in the Saturday Evening Post. I want you to read it and tell me whether it's an accurate account of your interview with Shambra. So Russo sat down there and read that thing line by line and made two or three corrections on it. And none of them had to do with Shaw. They were just peripheral matters. I had underlined the statement where Shambra had written, and I quote, I then showed him a picture of Clay Shaw and Russo said he'd seen this man twice. I had a ballpoint pen, and when I read it, I'd underline that because that, to me, was the key to the whole thing. So it was the only thing underlined in the whole memo. When Russo got down to it, he said, well, I should have said three times, counting the party. I'm usually pretty careful about what I say, but maybe I only said two times. Then he shrugged and went on and finished the memo. I said, other than the corrections you made, is this an accurate account of what you told Shambra? He said, well, we talked for a long time, talked about a lot of different things. And I said, no, I mean in terms of this case and what you knew about it. He said, yes. And I said, then you first mentioned the assassination plot and the party when? And he said, down in New Orleans. At that point, I'd verified the whole thing. I was so astonished, actually, that he'd say this, especially after Shambra had called him. I couldn't believe it. As soon as we got out in the car, I said to Matt Heron, did you hear that? He said, yeah. I said, burn it in your head, kid. I mean, right now, burn it in your head because someday you're going to be in court on this and I'm going to have to tell this story and you're my witness. The next morning, I flew out, went to New York, and wrote the article. I mean, I was satisfied. So about a week or so after the article came out in May, I called Matt Heron and asked him what the reaction was. He told me at that time he'd had a couple of calls from Perry Russo, and I said, how's Perry taking the article? He said, oh, He's very friendly. He doesn't understand what all the shouting's about, and he said he'd like to talk to you. Told me if you're ever down in New Orleans, come and see him. Give him a call. Heron gave me Russo's number, and I called him. By this time, he'd moved from Baton Rouge and was down in New Orleans. He was very friendly to me, told me he didn't see what all the hullabaloo was about, and he said, people tell me I ought to get a lawyer. What do you think? What do you advise me? I said, Perry, there's only one thing I'm ever going to tell you, and that's tell the truth about this thing. You're going to hurt yourself if you don't. He said, well, if you ever come down here, give me a ring. Shortly after this, I was approached by the NBC people, and I told them about this conversation. And this is what intrigued them, that after having written this article, the guy still wanted to talk to me. And that was it. They hired me, and I came down here. By this time, they'd indicted Dean Andrews. Garrison had told me in Las Vegas he didn't tell me Andrews' name. He said, there's a lawyer, friend of mine. I'm going to knock him on his ass because of what he's doing to my investigation. And then they indicted him for perjury. Garrison had a rep for clobbering people, and I talked to my lawyer on the West Coast. 
He advised me not to come here to New Orleans. He said, stay out of the jurisdiction. I talked to the attorney for the Saturday Evening Post, and he said, stay out of the jurisdiction. He said, I know you're not going to do it. I know you too well. When the Post article appeared, Moo Shambra went on TV and challenged me to come down here and appear with him before the grand jury. But I was never asked by the grand jury to come down. Garrison had my home phone number. He knew the address and phone number of the Post, and nobody ever asked me to come before the grand jury. Shambra just got up and shouted it out. So I figured when I came down, they'd just yank me before the grand jury, and I'd tell what happened, and Shambra and Garrison would lie about what happened, and they'd indict me for perjury. I expected it. So I told Pershing Gervais, Garrison's former chief investigator, that I wanted to get this monkey off my back right away. He said, well, tell Big Jim I'm in town, and if he's going to take me before the grand jury, here I am. I found out later they had a meeting the next day, and they decided, and I got word back, that they wouldn't take me before the grand jury unless I provoked them. I asked my informant what would provocation consist of. He said, if you hold a press conference and say you are publicly in town and defy them to take you to the grand jury, then they'll do it. (laughs) I wasn't about to. Well, do that. I'm not crazy. Thank you for listening to episode 161 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. 